Here we go. We talked last week in Hebrews chapter 12. Is anybody here for that one? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to move this week to Matthew chapter 5. Last week we talked about uh, our mission. Every uh, semester roughly, we, we, uh, and more than that, but just chiefly in one service, we try to just remember what we're all about. And we talked about it last week. Uh, we live as a church, and every church does, or should at least, live to glorify God. Can everybody agree with me on that? That's the first part of our mission. We live to glorify God. How do we do that? By being what? Disciples who what? Who make disciples. And so the two, the two chief ways that we can glorify God is with our own lives. We want to be the best disciples of his that we can be personally. And then we don't want it to stop here. We don't want to be pawns or puddles. We want to be rivers where the grace of God flows into us and flows out of us. And so that other people can know him. We want to be disciples who make disciples. We talked last week about our values. We do that all couched in these ideas, these, these, these hopes that we have uh, as, as we are being, uh, becoming disciples and making disciples. We want to worship God. We want to belong to each other. We want to serve God as we serve each other. And then through those three things, the worship of God, the belonging and relationships to each other, our service to each other and to our God, we hope to see him multiply what he's doing in us in the lives of other people. That's Nikki's story. She got kind of off the ranch and she met some godly women who pointed her back to Jesus and led her to faith in Jesus Christ. It's what we're all here for, to glorify God as disciples personally and to be used of God to make disciples as he allows. Now, if I had to couch what we're about to start studying uh, in, in some terms that would help us in that mission of ours is that these are the, the fundamentals, the basics of the Christ life. If we're going to be the best disciples we can be, we're going to start with these things that Jesus starts with in his sermon on the mount. There's eight blessings that he numbers here as he opens this teaching in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are some of my favorite chapters in the whole book. They take about 10 minutes to read if you're slow like me, 12, right? But they are probably... Um, truncated from what Jesus would have been sharing over at least one day or maybe a couple different days in his teaching to this crowd on this mountainside in Matthew 5. He unpacks for us a lot of the misunderstandings that people have had about God. That comes later. We'll tackle those a little bit later in the fall. But he opens here with these eight statements. They're profound. And they provide for us the priorities of the life that he has designed humans to live. Before uh, sin entered the garden and sin, sin entered the human story, these were the things that would have marked us in the perfection that we shared with God. He wants us to, to head back to that garden, that pre-sin existence, and, and understand that these are the things that will indeed lead us back to a relationship with God, and then enable us to glorify him the best that we can as we live life with him. It's kind of like the three R's. Anybody remember hearing about those when you're going to school? When I went to kindergarten, I learned important things like, you know, how to line up for the drinking fountain and, you know, to make sure that you don't steal someone else's lunch. Those were the first day. Uh, but then the other things you learn are just the basis for the rest of your educational experience, right? Learn to read. Reading's kind of important, right? If you can't read, it's harder, harder to, you know, uh, ingest all the stuff that the books have for you. If you can't write, it's hard for you to take tests, write papers, be able to express what you've learned. If you can't add and subtract, this is the, the more profound one for me, adding and subtracting is the part of every other piece of math that we learn to do. Isn't that true? Like multiplication is just... Adding eight times eight, there's eight eights, add them all together. I think it's 64, is that right? 
Dividing is, is, is knowing how to subtract. And, and anyway, you guys did math. I don't need to explain it all to you. But these, these foundational things are the, the basis on which everything else is built. I believe that these eight blessings that Jesus enumerates in Matthew 5 are the kinds of foundations that we're meant to live in if we're going to be the best disciples and the best at making disciples that we can be. I, uh, I love this passage of scripture so much that apparently I've taught it more often than I thought. I, I, these are the first messages I ever uh, preached here in 2004 when I got here. And so uh, I thought preaching it again now would be the second time that I preached this. My wife reminded me, because she apparently listens to me preaching, which is great, but she, uh, she reminded me that I covered these same verses about four years ago in 2017. And I was like, ah, oh, like I didn't realize this until yesterday, right? And so I'm in my office yesterday preparing this sermon, and, and I actually uh, texted some of my staff mates. I'm like, man, I just talked about this four years ago. Should I probably do something else? And they're like, no, listen, a couple things. Uh, first of all, uh, there's a tons of new folks who weren't here uh, four years ago. In fact, if you weren't here four years ago, just wave at me. How you doing if you're new? Great to have you. So glad you're here. This is going to be brand new stuff for you, at least for me, right? Uh, and then the rest of you who were here, you can't remember what I preached four weeks ago. Come on. So I'm not super worried about four years ago, right? Those are side reasons, but, but, but here's, here's the main reason. This stuff is worth going over again and again. I joke all the time about how when I preach, it's just Mexican food. I'm giving you the same ingredients, just packaging it different ways, right? Everybody gets that Mexican food is five things. It's a tortilla, it's some meat, it's some beans, it's some rice. It's, and they just, they can fry it, they can roll it up, they can, but it's all the same stuff. It's five things just packaged different ways. It's the same thing with God's truth. Isn't it great? He doesn't complicate things. He just, he says, here's what it is. Learn it, live it, and we need to be reminded of it on the regular. Because if you're like me, you got spiritual amnesia all over the place, and this stuff just leaks out of your head. And so it is that we cover these blessings. It starts like this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain. This was strategic for a speaker. If you're going to speak back then, none of these microphone-type deals. And so you'd go up on a hill so that you could speak down into a cavern or a canyon, and your voice would bounce all over the place, and uh, you could hear better. You're going to notice that when you go out underneath our roof. Um, I'm louder now that there's a, a, a lid over the top of me. Anyway, so Jesus goes up on this mountain. And he sits down. This was the custom of a, of a Jewish rabbi. You would never teach standing up as a rabbi. I kind of like that. I might indoctrinate. I might, I might become a sitting preacher. It'd be way easier. Uh, but his disciples, they came to him. We know this is at least the 12 guys that he's called specifically, but it's probably more than that. It's probably a bunch of people who, uh, as early followers of Jesus, have kind of you know, taken the day and said, hey, he's over you know, on this hill. We're going to go listen to him and speak uh, listen to what he has to say. It says in verse 2 that he opened his mouth and he taught them and he said these things. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's six more blessings. We're going to learn those in each subsequent week that we gather together. But we're going to start with these two blessed statements today. 
uh, as is my want, and I think I've done this in the previous sermons that I've taught you this, my hope whenever we study scripture is that the pieces that we can memorize, it's all worth memorizing, but these foundational basics that we need to have for the Christ life, I want you to be able to just say them to me. If I find you in a Publix, I want to be able to say to you, hey, do you know these verses? And you could say that. And so that's why we do these motions. That's why you're about to stand up and learn these verses with me. Everybody, here we go. Come on. Use those legs. Straighten them out. Here we go. Uh, we're going to find out in just a second that this word, makarioi, which is uh, the word, Greek word for blessed, is actually approved. So give me a thumbs up, everybody. I approve this message. Ah, there you go. Blessed is going to be what we say when we do this. Everybody say blessed. Blessed are the poor. We're going to take our pockets and not really take them, but we're going to just kind of pull them out like there's no money in them. Is everybody with me on that? So blessed are the and here we go. It's a dove. It's flying up from the baptism of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. Blessed are the in for theirs is the make me a crown. Everybody give me some crown. Here we go. Theirs is the kingdom of and then everybody wave at heaven of heaven. There it is. Okay. So the first verse goes like this. Everybody real loud so they can hear you somewhere. No, let me start. Let me settle down. Now we're ready. Here we go. Are the in for theirs is the of all right. Next one's this one. Are those who for they give yourself a hug for they shall be all right from the top. What is it? I don't see you doing it, bro. I'm not going to I'm looking right at you. Yeah, you don't think I'm watching. I'm totally watching. You ready? What's the next one? Nice. Dude in the ball cap nailed it. Way to go. All right, have a seat. Pay attention. I'm watching. Jesus is describing in these first two blessings and in the next six this life that he has intended for humans to live when he created us, this was what he had in mind for us to live this blessed life that is marked by being poor in spirit, that is marked by mourning, by being meek, and all the other things we're going to study. Let's talk about these words. I said blessed already is the word for what? What's it mean? Approved. Good. It means I approve of you. In, in other translations, some translations say happy. The word does mean happy. Uh, it means, you know, uh, uh, apex satisfaction, right? Uh, a pluses across the board. Fortunate. But it, it mostly means approved. I'll get to that in just a second. Approved is this idea of the emojis that we send. Isn't everybody grateful that you don't have to actually talk to people anymore? You can just, you know, send them a thumb or a, one of these, or a, you know, these clappy hands. They'll all show up here. There they are. Does anybody use these when you communicate with people anymore? I've used the thumb up like six times already today in the text messages uh, that I've used. But that's, that's what I'm saying when I give the thumbs up in a text. I approve. Um, and here's what we need to understand. As we look at what it means to be happy, the happiest we can ever be is when we are most approved of by the God who made us. Did everybody get me that? Or get me that? Get me on that? I don't know if you did. I didn't even speak English just there for a second. 
But let me try to say it again. What I just told you is something that is not normal, not accepted in our culture. Happiest means when I'm richest. Happiest means when I am not at work or never have to work again. Or we have all these things that we connect with happy in our culture. But I'm telling you, spiritually speaking, the happiest that you can ever be is when your life is the most approved that it can be by the God who gave it to you. Is everybody with me on that? And so it is that when we read these blessings, we're not reading, how can I do happiness best? How can I go about being the happiest that I can be on my own strength? We understand that what Jesus is saying is that your happiness will be best expressed when you do these things to the glory of God and for the honor of God. And he says to you, way to go. Now, there are times when I do things purely for me. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go out and, and I enjoy play golf, so I'll go play a round of golf by myself and do it all for myself and I feel happy at the end. But that was all about me. I'll, I'll, I'll go to my kitchen. I'm not really handy. Many of you know the stories of my handiwork. It's not good. But, but I, I can cook uh, some really good chocolate chip cookies. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a chocolate chip cookie magician. And there are times, I'm just going to confess this to you, I'll share them with the rest of my family, but I'll bake those suckers up just so I can enjoy what I've done. Is everybody with me on this? Anybody got something like that? But, but that is a kind of happiness, a self-satisfying uh, happiness, an intrinsic happiness. But what we need to understand is this happiness that we're talking about, this blessing that, that Jesus is talking about is extrinsic. It's, it's outside of me. It is, it's the kind of happiness that you can have when you're on a, a sports team and your coach says to you, hey, listen, we just got a few uh, you know, seconds left in this game, and, and I don't need you to make the game-winning shot. I need you to set the pick that will free up the other player to make the game-winning shot. Can you do that for me? And, and you say yes, and you go out and you run the play as prescribed by the coach, and sure enough, that kid that you, you know, sacrifice your body for, his defender bowls you over, but he gets that open shot. The team wins. Everybody carries him off the floor, but your coach comes to you and says, hey, man, I saw what you did. That's exactly what needed to happen so that we could have this win. No one else sees it, but the one who asked you to do it saw you execute his design, and he applauded. He approved. That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about this blessing. The blessedness that we're going to see in these eight things starts here in uh, verse 3 with the poor in spirit being uh, conferred the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the, say it with me, kingdom of, that's okay, we'll get you next time. Yeah. Now, would it surprise you to know that you go through all eight of these and on the eighth one, uh, the persecuted are also conferred for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Here's what's just happened. It's a Hebrew uh, form of poetry. It's called, uh, you know, I call it inclusio. It basically uh, bookends a long list of eight things with these two things. The six things in between are basically descriptors of the two things that bookend. And so in all of these, what we have is Jesus saying, hey, blessed are you when God approves you, uh, approves of you and the things that you choose, you are the recipients the, uh, uh, the, the, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so kingdoms are, you know, citizens of the kingdom of heaven are those who are comforted. They're those who inherit the earth. 
There are those who are filled. You can go down through the list with me if you want to read it there in Matthew chapter 5. There are those who see God. There are those who receive mercy. There are those who are called sons of God. These are all kingdom realities. And so it's important for us to understand that every one of these blessings shows that we are members of, citizens of, participating in the kingdom of heaven. One more thing about the kingdom of heaven. When I say the kingdom of heaven, most of us think about the future. Heaven is this place that awaits us. It's this future reality for those of us who are in Christ. We're going to go someday, whether we die or Jesus comes back, to the heaven that he's prepared for us. Anybody heard of this? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I want to challenge your thinking on heaven just being this future realization of ours. Heaven is this thing that's meant to exist in our now. In fact, I would tell you that in the world that we live in, spiritually speaking, there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world and there is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And when we're taught to pray by Jesus in the Gospels, he says this, um, our, our Father, say this when you pray, our Father, say it with me, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is in. And so there's this idea from Jesus in scripture that heaven is now. It says in Ephesians chapter two that we are sitting at the right hand of the Father in Christ now. It is a current existence of ours, even as we await its fullest expression in the future. And so it is that as we seek the kingdom of heaven, we bring it or we uh, align ourselves with it as we behave in the ways, as we hold up the principles, the priorities that Jesus lays out for us in these eight blessings. Are you ready? Let's start them. The first blessing is this. We need to recognize that we are spiritually broke. You ever been broke? Some of us have been broker than others. You know, I like to tell my kids because they have way more than I did when I was a kid, you're fine. Anybody got those kids? Hey man, you're good. I can tell you about, you know, I'm, I'm the dad who like, I walked uphill both ways to school, you know, 75 feet of snow, uh, whatever, you know, I'm that dad. Uh, we've all, you know, to some level, uh, relatively speaking, had less than someone else and more than someone else. Is that fair? But very few of us in here, maybe some, but very few of us in here have ever been the kind of poor that Jesus is talking about. The word poor here is the Greek word uh, pitohos. Everybody say pitohos. It means beggarly. It means I don't have a house. I don't have a bank account. I certainly don't have a government that is supplementing my income. I got nothing. And if I'm going to survive, I depend on those around me to give to me because I have nothing. It's the picture that you have in the scriptures as Jesus met lame men and blind men and others who uh, were leprous and suffered from all kinds of infirmities. If you were outside, um, you know, human, uh, uh, you know, uh, normalness is what I'll say. If you had any kind of disability or handicap, you were put out by your families, disregarded by them, and you were just basically, told, you know, not all, but many were just kind of sent out to fend for themselves. And so they'd sit by pools and they'd fly signs like we see guys and ladies doing in our town and have no other backup except what someone could provide for them. Jesus says, blessed, happy, approved are you 
if you understand that you are poor, beggarly, and then he qualifies it in spirit. Now, historically through the church, some people have taken this whole poor thing and said, well, what Jesus wants us to do is to literally be materially poor. Sell all your stuff. That's what he told the rich young ruler, right? Sell all your stuff and follow me. Uh, is anybody here um, at least a little bit happy to know that that's not, in essence, what Jesus is saying? In fact, uh, certainly it's more difficult for people with lots of stuff to follow God because lots of stuff means, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm autonomous, I'm, I'm, I'm self-sustaining. It, it's difficult for us to get to the need that we actually have. But being rich is actually a blessing. There's lots of rich people in the kingdom of God who are providing for ministry and, and, and ministry runs off of those things that God has invested in your lives and my life so that we can invest them in what he's doing. Is everybody, it's not a sin to be rich. It's a sin to count on your riches, but it's not a sin to be rich. He says, blessed are the poor, the pistoas, or pitoas, I'm sorry, that's a different word, in, what's it say? Spirit, verse three, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the basic realization that you and I must arrive at uh, where we understand that we have nothing within ourselves to make us worthy of life with God. We've shown up to that, you know, heavenly cash register in the sky, if you want to put it that way, and we forgot our wallet. Anybody been there at Publix? I went to Sam's yesterday at lunchtime. Don't go to Sam's on Saturday, ever. Can I just encourage everybody with that? It's a zoo. It's a madhouse. Everybody in Brandon is like stocking up for the next four years, and there's just carts, you know, backed up through all the aisles of uh, products. And, and so uh, I got in a line yesterday with just, the, you know, two boxes of strawberries and uh, I don't even know what else I got, some bread. I don't know what I got. But I was just standing there, and I'm like, okay. So I'm looking at my phone. I'm, I'm pushing my buggy, and it's taking me 10, 15, almost 20 minutes to get through this line. It feels like. I'm sure it was shorter. But I finally get to the place where you can, and everybody scans themselves now, right? And finally there at the spot where I could scan. And, I, and it, who's, who's done this? Anybody been here? Especially you guys who wear shorts, and that's where you keep your. So you go here. Well, it's not. It's supposed to be here, but it's not here. Your wallet's not here. So what do you do? Maybe. For the first time ever, I've put it in my back pocket. So you go back and front, and you keep patting this way, right? And it still never shows up. Who's been there? And then you start looking back in the line. Did I drop it back there? <gasps> Did, oh, no. Did I leave it in the car? The worst thing that can happen to someone who's waited 20 minutes in a line at a grocery store is that you've left your wallet in the car. It means you've got to go out to the car and get back in the line. Who's with me on this? Anybody with me on this? I looked down, and by the grace of God, I had put it next to the strawberries where the kid's supposed to sit in my cart, right? It was just sitting right there, transaction over, back to the house. Booyah. But there are many people, listen to me, and you might be numbered among them. I pray this isn't you, but there are many people who have convinced themselves, I've got all that I need. And when I get to that cash register in the sky, to the gates of heaven, I will say to them, I went to Bay Life. My parents were Christians. Uh, I went to men's ministry. I was in a life group. Uh, I did all of these things. I was busy. I was banking for myself these things. And Jesus will just ask that one question. Did you ever get to the point where you realize that your things amount to zero when it comes to life with me? And you won't be able to duck or hide on that one. 
And if you haven't come to the point where you know that you know that you know that when it comes to me and God and the relationship he desires us to have, I bring nothing, then you can't be a part of his kingdom. Now, (laughs) this is interesting. If you come to that realization and, and indeed from being poor in spirit, realize that I need to be saved by someone else. I'm a beggar. I got nothing. Jesus, step in. And you receive Christ, which many of us, I'm looking at you, I know a ton of you, many of us have made that decision, and by faith, we are in the kingdom. Amen? Isn't that great? Can I just let you know, being poor in spirit does not end there. Because if you and I are going to be the disciples that God has called us to be, we must remain poor in spirit, humble, understanding that we in and of ourselves have nothing. If God accomplishes some good through us, it had zero to do with us. It had everything to do with him and his spirit working through us. Is everybody with me? But here's what happens in the church. We go to a couple classes, we learn a couple things. We head off to seminary and get an official degree. A guy signed it and everything. We start thinking we know stuff. And that that knowledge somehow makes us better. This is what happened to a group of people in the time that Jesus lived called the Pharisees. They ascended in their religion. They had lots of skins on the wall. Abilities to keep the laws beyond what other people could. And they were sure that they were sure that they were sure that the sheer fact that they were sons of Abraham and keepers of the law was all that God would require. But Jesus, the son of God, comes to them And he had some pretty choice names for those guys. Whitewashed tombs was my favorite. He says, you guys look good on the outside. You're like a tomb with a new paint job. You look awesome, but everything inside of you is dead. You've you've tithed off of your spice rack. You give a tenth of your dill and your cumin, your cinnamon. You are so rigid with keeping the laws, but you have absolutely no clue who this God is that you say that you serve because in you there is nothing of his mercy. There is nothing of his love. You have everything and at the same time, spiritually, you got nothing and you don't even know. (laughs) Oh, man, that that not be said of us. May we understand that Jesus isn't saying that we're losers, that we have no value. Of course we have value. He came to earth and died for every one of us. He loves us. That is the value that you and I have. But when it comes to our relationship with him spiritually, he does the work initially in our salvation and perpetually in our sanctification as we seek to be disciples of his. We used to take our kids to uh, the amusement parks here in our area, the, uh, what is it, the, Bush Gardens over here. Sometimes we'd go over to Orlando. Uh, when they were really little, they'd, they'd have a desire to start going on some of these big boy rides, right? Uh, but they would be too short. Isn't that crazy? If, if you go to like Shikra right now or whatever the new roller coasters are, I haven't been in a while, but there's someone outside, some picture of some character, Bugs Bunny or something, I don't know who it is, but they're like basically holding up a hand. And if your kid isn't this tall, he's not getting on that ride. Who's ever been to the parks with your kid and, and year after year they keep going, you know, trying to get up to this hand so they can ride this ride, right? Finally, the day comes where they, you know, the pituitary gland kicks in and they, they pass the hand, right? And then, you know, it's just roller coasters galore. But here's the deal. Does everybody understand that there's a kingdom of heaven that has a hand, but it's not in how tall you are. 
It's in how small you are. I referenced the rich young ruler, a story that, you know, uh, is in our Gospels about how Jesus met this guy who uh, came up to him and says, what, I'm at, what must I do to be saved? And, and this, this, you know, Jesus says to this guy, well, you've got to keep all the rules. It's, in essence, I'm paraphrasing. But the, the young guy just turns around. Everybody is like, yep, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I've kept all of them. And he's feeling pretty good about himself, pretty full. But then Jesus says to him, remember what he says? Hey, take everything you got, sell it and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. What was he saying? He's, he's teaching poor in spirit, not poor materially, although that was involved in this, but he's saying, hey, listen, you need to realize that you have nothing, are nothing, and if you want to follow me, you've got you to empty yourself. <laughs> Jesus is in the business of filling what's empty. Everybody get that? Doesn't matter how much you have monetarily, doesn't how blessed you are relationally, Jesus is in the business of coming to those who, even though God has blessed them in all of these ways, still understand, are still quite aware of the fact that I have nothing, am nothing, apart from Christ in me. And it's into that emptiness that Jesus fills us with his grace. Hmm. I'm skipping all around. Sorry, Chris, he's our slack guy. In John 14, verse 10, we see this on display about our Savior. He's talking with a bunch of people, and, and they're doubting that he's from God the Father. And he says, how can you even say that? Everything I've said has been completely in line with what he has said before me in, in his word. He says, do you not believe, verse 10 in John 14, that, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He says, listen, even within the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is this deference, this, if you will, poorness of spirit. I, I see the Father work through me, even though I am his equal. I continually put myself in positions where I am lower, I am subservient to him. He goes into a, a temple one day in Luke chapter 18. Yeah, and in the temple, uh, he, he notices these two men who are in the, in the temple. And he tells this story to his friends. Two men, ten, two men uh, went up into the temple to pray. One was this, this Pharisee, these guys who were self-sufficient. And the other was a tax collector, which, by the way, uh, was just the lowest of the low in society. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this way to God in this temple. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then he probably points, we know he does, uh, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. He goes on and he says, uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's the spice rack. Uh, but the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven because he was low. And he beat his, his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Why? Because I am poor. In spirit, Jesus says, hey, guys, I tell you, this guy, this tax collector, he went down to his house that day justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I was a, a student in a, a, a 
crowd like this, a, a youth pastor speaker was speaking to, to, to me when I was, you know, uh, 17, 18 years old. And he brought a, a goldfish up on stage with him. If you can throw that up there. He, uh, this goldfish was just kind of swimming in this pool. And he started talking about, uh, in essence, being poor in spirit. And understanding that there's this one way, this, this prescribed life that Jesus has for us. And he's talking about how sin pulls us out of that. He goes to the garden. He says, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, they, they closed down the garden. They, they, they leaned into what the world has to offer and what sin has to offer and away from what God has to offer. And so he's in the middle of talking about this. He's starting to get kind of heated up. He sticks his hand in the fishbowl. He grabs the goldfish and throws it on the stage. I know some of you are in PETA. That is not a good thing at all, right? I'm not going to do that. But can you picture it? And this goldfish is flopping around on the stage and all the, you know, the people in the crowd are freaking out. You're going to kill a goldfish. He, he, he quickly grabs, you know, Ben's, oh, sorry. And he grabs the goldfish and he puts it back. And this is what he said. He said, you know what? When, when we forget that we're nothing, when we start trying to do for ourselves like Adam and Eve did in the garden, then, then we leave the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that God has set out for us, which will sustain us and give us life, and we head into the world to a place that will only bring what? Death. And he goes on to talk about how um, this is what Jesus is describing in this blessed life. It's this life that we get to live according to his plan, according to his purposes, so that he receives our very best. The last thing is this, that we need to remember to take sin seriously. I'll do this one real quick. What was the verse? Verse four, it says what? Blessed are those who, for they will be comforted. In another part of scripture, Jesus um, goes into this same teaching, but he kind of reverses his, his word form here in, in Luke chapter six. He says the same thing in essence, but in Luke chapter six, verse 25, this is how he says it. He says, woe to you, not blessed, woe to you, who laugh now, opposite of mourning, right? Woe to you who laugh now because you're the ones who in the future shall weep and shall mourn. All right, so, so we've got these two basic ideas. Let, let, let's all agree. Does, there, does anybody here like mourning? I'm not talking like this morning. I'm talking about being sad. No one like looks forward to the times when this is going to just be hard. Let's do this. This is so great. Normal people try to avoid that as much as possible. Anybody with me? And so how can it be blessed or how can we be happy, if we want to put it that way, when we're mourning? Well, he's not talking again about us being kind of, you know, sadistic or, or masochistic and, and just wanting pain. He's talking spiritually. He's talking in the same way that we need to be poor in spirit. We need to mourn spiritually what has happened in the world that we live in, in our own lives and in the lives around us. Sin has made a mess of the world that we live in. Is everybody with me on that? Like, I don't know what you read when you read your news feeds. Certainly there's stuff happening in Afghanistan. There's stuff happening with this pandemic. There's stuff happening everywhere. But if you read behind the particulars of the story, all you're seeing is the results of sin entering the world. If you read Romans chapter 3, it talks about how this sin has corrupted our souls, our speech, and our actions. That there are none righteous. No, not one. That sin has just made just a complete catastrophe of creation. 
That creation itself, it says later in Romans, groans for the return of Christ so that we can get back to being how we're supposed to be. Sin has made a mess. And I say those things to you, and how does that hit you? Yeah. Yeah, for some people. I mean, I'm cool. And my sins aren't as bad as others. There's way bad, way worse sinners than me. I mean, I could stand up and point to a couple, Mark, if you want, but, you know, that might be embarrassing. Now, here's what I've figured out about me and probably you. We're usually pretty easy on ourselves when it comes to sin. Now, some of you, uh, you are... um, uh, not that way. You, you actually have suffered in your own self-esteem because you can't let go of your sin and, and the guilt of your sin. I would tell you that the Holy Spirit wants to free you from that because guilt is a tool of our adversary, not a tool of the Spirit, right? He doesn't want us wallowing in sin, so that's a quick aside for everybody who might be that. But the rest of us in here are like, no, 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 no. I know I sin. I mean, yeah. But as far as it being, you know, something really big and bad, it's not really big and bad. It's something, you know, I can handle, I can sort out, and, and no one knows, and, and I'll, I'll just kind of keep, you know, it on the down low, and, and it won't be that big a deal. Here, okay. Does everybody understand the importance of us recognizing how horrible sin is in us and in the world and how that should break our hearts? If being poor in spirit is an intellectual exercise, it's something we have to intellectually assent to, mourning over sin is an emotional exercise. I have to grieve that sin has made a mess of my life and the world around me. And I have to understand that that sin is still something that separates me from God, that that keeps me from having his best. And it's in that feeling of of despair and, and grief over sin that God comes to me and, again, takes something that's empty and fills it up. Blessed are the mourned, mourn, those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. He fills us up. I was a college freshman the first time I came to Florida on spring break. And uh, we went to Marco Island. I went with a kid whose family had bought a condo there years before. They'd summered there, vacationed there on several occasions. Uh, and we had very different experiences. I came from never having being uh, uh, poor, as it were, <laughs> in this case, financially. I'd never seen how the other side lived. Never you know, sniffed anything below uh, the, the southern part of Illinois. And so everything was a wide-eyed experience for me, driving through Atlanta at breakneck speeds. Yeah. Uh, uh, heading down, you know, Florida taking forever to get through. I thought Florida was only this big on the map. Why did it take eight hours to go from the tip of Florida down to the bottom? It was weird. We finally get to Marco Island. We walk into this guy's family condo. His dad was a huge ad exec in Detroit, and uh, they had really nice stuff. And so I walked into his condo, and the first thing I did is I walked out to the balcony that faced the gulf, and I just stood there. Where am I? What is this stuff? My friend who owned the place walked in, and immediately started making assessments on how dirty it was from the renters who had just rented the week before. Went into the kitchen and found that they hadn't thrown all their garbage out, and he was fussed out about that. I'm on the balcony going, wow, he's inside going, okay, look at me, and then then I'll be done. I I thought you were playing. I could kind of hear it. Anyway, here's the deal. In the Christ life, it is so easy to get inoculated by what we've received from him 
for many of us, years and years of walking with him has made us numb to the realities of our situation with our God. You and I came into this with nothing, and guess what? No matter how many skins you got on the wall, you still have nothing. And you and I, if we're going to be the best disciples that we can be, need to live in light of this ongoing truth. It's the only thing that will make us effective in our own discipleship and the making of disciples of others is for us to understand that unless God does it, it cannot be done. He works through those who are poor in spirit. And he loves to comfort those who understand the depths of depravity, the ways that sin has marred their lives and the lives of the world around them. And and they come to him, their hearts breaking with the things that break the heart of our God. And they say to our God, like we sang earlier, you're more than enough. I'm broken, I'm empty. Fill me, comfort me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's from that posture, it's from that position that we can experience all that God has for us. And it is my prayer that as we as his church seek to fulfill the mission he's given us, we do it poor in spirit, serious about sin, eradicating it from our lives, reversing it in the world that we live in. Let us be, let us start with those things so that we can do the others that we're going to study in the weeks to come. That's all I got. We used to close services where I'm from with this song, Just As I Am. Anybody remember that one? Yeah. Uh, Some of you know it, so you're going to have to sing louder than the rest of us. Uh, But it was one of these songs when I grew up in church, I didn't really like it. I'll just be honest with you. It closed every service I ever went to in this Baptist church I was a part of. And it just didn't make sense to me. The words are weird. But let me read them to you before we sing them. We're just going to sing the first verse. This is what the pastor would invite people to come and change their lives to. I'm inviting you to come. If there's change that needs to happen in your life, if you need to realize you're poor in spirit, if you need to mourn over some sin and confess and be repentant in your sin, come and talk to me or Travis in the corner, deal with whatever's going on. But this is what we would sing, just as I am, without one plea. You know what that means? Without a hope, without one request, without one rightful request of God. We got nothing, just as I am, nothing, without one plea. Except this, this spiritual life is possible because the blood of Jesus was shed for me. And that thou bids me. The only reason I'm coming to you is that you've called me to you, Jesus. And that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. You want to stand and sing that with me? We'll go baptize some folks and go home. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for 
Lamb of God, Jesus, Son of God, uh, we come to you in this, in this room, in this uh, online uh, space, and in, in the time that we've been given, hopefully having read what Jesus uh, said on that mountainside, uh, understanding that we are truly blessed when we understand that um, we are nothing without you. It's the only way we can gain access to the kingdom of heaven. It's the only way we can be successful in this life that is the kingdom of heaven. Um, help us to know that and then help us to feel the weight of sin, not in such a way that it cripples us and keeps us from moving forward, but help us to always be serious about sin in our own lives, in, in, in our prayers as we pray for what's going on in the world. Help us to see the sin behind the headlines and to come to you and you alone for the solution that only you can give. God, be our comfort in our own times of, of mourning in our lives personally, but in, in, in the needs that we face as a country, as a culture, as a society, may we look to you and you alone for what only you can provide. Fill up the empty spaces in us, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come talk to Travis if you want. I'll see you outside as we baptize folks. Have a great week. <laughs>